Jesus said, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding on what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And now our text. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Well, it's been a little over a month since we celebrated Christmas. That annual reminder of the time when God took on humanity and came into this world and became one of us. And we remember as we celebrate the Christmas season and we remember as we read the Scriptures related to His coming that His arrival in first century Israel was largely unexpected. The Jews had many centuries of prophecy concerning the One who was to deliver them. They knew about the One who would crush the serpent's head. But they had been so wrapped up in their traditions and in their outward religion that they were not anticipating His arrival. This was true of most, especially among those who should have known better, namely the religious leaders in Israel. 
And while these were dark spiritual days for the nation, not all were in the dark. There were some who were watching and waiting. One thinks of the Magi, those wise men from the East. These were pagans, they were not Jews, and yet these Gentile astrologers were more in tune with what God was doing than the Jews who possessed the Scriptures. They were looking for the king when few others were. Or there was Simeon, the man in the temple who encountered Jesus as a newborn. He was so watchful for the coming of Messiah that God even gave him a promise and told him he would not die until he had seen the Christ. Simeon was eagerly watching and waiting. Or there was Anna, a prophetess who would spend her days in the temple fasting and praying, and she too was anticipating the coming of Christ. And we are told there were others with her. It says in Luke 2.38, And coming up at that very hour, Anna began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Or there's the most obvious of all, John the Baptist. John spent his entire life watching and waiting. And the fact that there were so few among God's people preparing themselves for his coming demonstrates the sad spiritual condition in first century Israel. And just as God expected his people to be ready for Christ's arrival, so too he expects his people to be ready for Christ's return. I'm going to say that again. God expected his people to be ready for Christ's arrival, and God expects his people to be ready for Christ's return. God tells his church again and again to be ready. So what does it look like to be ready? Many misinterpret the call to be ready as only a call to look for signs, to study world events and to look for evidence of His coming. And so books are written and conferences are held and blogs and websites give prophecy updates, all with the latest speculation about how this event or that event points to the return of Christ. I shared a few sermons ago how I used to listen to one teacher who had a TV program and he, with a newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other, was telling us every week that this prophecy was fulfilled, this Old Testament text was fulfilled over and over and over. And many see that as the kind of preparedness that Jesus is talking about. But is that what Jesus means when He says that we are to be ready? Does being ready mean studying the news and associating world events with biblical prophecy? Or does Jesus emphasize something entirely different? What we find in every case is not a call to be experts in eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times. Or go to all the prophecy conferences or engage in the latest speculation. But the warning is always the same. 
make sure your life is in order and that you are living for the right things so that when He comes, it is not a shock to you. In other words, live in such a way that you welcome His return. That you are excited for His return. It's a call to obedience. It's not a call to knowledge. Now, if you have an interest in studying the end times and you find it fascinating and you keep up on prophecy and all that, that's fine. I don't want to discourage you from that. If you're excited about His return and you're trying to put the pieces all together, that's fine. I want you to be excited about that. But if you're doing all of that and your life is not in order and you are not pursuing holiness in the fear of God, then you are missing the main reason that Jesus taught these things. If you focus on the particulars of world events and speculate about the Antichrist and are consumed with what's going on in the Middle East, and you do so without focusing on the application that Jesus gives, then you're missing the point. The purpose of end times prophecy, especially in the New Testament, is not about unlocking an ancient code by correlating current events, but it's a device that Jesus uses to warn His disciples that they need to live holy lives. And the warning is that they will grow spiritually dull and drift into sin. To put it very succinctly, Jesus does not direct us to the news. He directs us to our hearts. Now, what am I talking about here? Well, the beginning of our passage. Jesus says in 21.34, But watch yourselves. But watch yourselves. Philip, Philip Ryken in his commentary on Luke says, every time Jesus talked about the end of the world, He always gave His disciples the same practical advice to get ready for it now, before the time comes. Jesus did not give us signs of the coming judgment so that we could chart the future, but to exhort us to practice perpetual preparedness. Meaning, you're always ready. That the point is, you're always to be ready. We are to live in such a way that when Jesus returns, we are eager to see Him and not ashamed at His coming. Now, I want to stress again, I don't want anyone to hear me say, oh, pastor said it's not important to study Bible prophecy. I'm not saying that. If you like to study Bible prophecy, study it. It's like a ton of Scripture. It's a very important part of Scripture. My word of caution would be, that kind of study uh, ends, uh, tends towards lots of speculation. And if you look back in church history, you have 2,000 years of lots of speculation about things that did not come true. And the Scripture says to set our minds on things that, is, that are true. So that would be my only caution. But I'm not saying don't be interested in those things. I'm just 
making a point that if you're interested in those things and you're not interested in the application that Jesus gives about those things, then it's going to be in vain. Now, I think this whole thing, as I've been studying this chapter, is fascinating the way God wrote the Bible. I get to study this all week. I spend a week in a text and I give it to you for 45 minutes and you guys aren't thinking about it all week like I am. But it's so fascinating that God wrote this in such a way that it has application to the 1st century and the 5th century and the 12th century and the 21st century and every century in between and if He tarries every century beyond. He wrote it in such a way so that every disciple of Christ reads it and says, I better be ready. It's living and it's active and it's convicting. And so the, the, the word to His church throughout the ages is that He's coming at any time. Which makes it relevant to everyone. No one was to read this in the 2nd century or the 5th century and say, well, this is, this is not going to happen for probably hundreds or thousands of years, so this is not going to apply to us. No, it applies to every generation because we are to see these things and say, I better be living for Christ because He's coming back. There are two truths that every Christian in the last 2,000 years can hold to. Number one, Jesus is coming. Number two, I better be living for Him when He comes. That's the emphasis. That's the emphasis here. Let's read the couple verses together. He says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Now this is the sixth and final message out of what we call the Olivet Discourse. And the main theme I've been drumming through the entire series is that we need to see this with first century lenses and we need to see this with 21st century lenses. In other words, we're not just reading this as a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century, and we're not just seeing this as an end-of-the-world kind of event. We are holding them both, and we are able to see how it applies to the first century, how it applies to the 21st century or beyond. And what I've tried to do along the way is show how it's relevant to that first century audience. Jesus just said two verses before this, this generation will not pass away until all of these things are fulfilled. We saw that two weeks ago. And what I've tried to do as we've gone through this chapter is to show you how all of these things would make perfect sense to them. They're not thinking 2,000 years from now. They're thinking this is happening, it's coming soon. Now, one thing that a modern reader might stumble over is what Jesus says here in verse 35. For it, the day of the Lord, will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And we in the 21st century might look at that and say, well, how could a first century hearer 
think that this event was going to happen in their day if this event is going to affect all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. You follow me? A couple weeks ago, I was like, how, can they, how would they interpret the sun going dark and the moon not giving its light and the stars falling from the sky and all the rest? And I explained that a couple weeks ago, that that's a genre of literature called apocalyptic language. How would they understand this? All who dwell on the face of the whole earth? I mean, isn't Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? So if you put yourself in that place and you're sitting cross-legged in front of Jesus and He's teaching about Jerusalem being destroyed and He's answering your question, disciples, about when the temple was going to come down, not one stone left upon another, how on earth could they possibly think this was going to happen in their day? And hopefully you recognize if you've read the Bible enough that their thinking about the whole world is going to be much more narrow than our thinking of the whole world. In other words, when Jesus says this, the disciples are not picturing Australia North America or Argentina or Korea or any of those other places. Jesus says the whole world in our context and we're picturing a globe. But you have to recognize that to the first century hearer, the whole world is the extent of the Roman Empire. So we would want to read this with the first century lens and say the then known world or the world as it was to them. How was the world to them? The world to them was largely the Mediterranean, around the Mediterranean area, and there are, were some lands that were kind of on the fringes of civilization beyond that, but the world would be a reference to the Roman Empire. I just want to prove this with a couple examples to stay consistent with the series because I've been showing you how it applies to both. Luke 2.1 In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You remember that? This is before the birth of Christ and this is how Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem. And how were they to interpret this kind of saying? How would we think about this kind of saying? Does this mean that Caesar was sending out a decree to the jungles of Africa or to the early Americas? No. We recognize that there's a historical context here. There's a particular kind of geography that they would have in mind. And that is the extent of the whole world. Or in Acts 24.5, the Jews put Paul on trial and they say, For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now once again, this is a description of their world, which is the ancient Near East and slightly beyond that. Or if you look at the places that Paul preached, you would recognize, well, there's no way that Paul was going throughout the world. 
Colossians 1.6, final example, Paul writes to this church and says, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Now this is a letter that was written approximately 20 years after Christ ascended into heaven, and so obviously he's not talking about China, which didn't even have its first missionary until the early 1800s. So you can see how this prophecy about the coming destruction of the temple is going to make sense to the, the disciple who's sitting there hearing it. Yes, yes, yes. The whole world, the, the Roman Empire, there's going to be a cataclysmic event. It's going to affect this, this, the Roman Empire. And at the same time, we can see 2,000 years removed that Jesus literally means in the far prophecy, it is going to affect the whole world. It is going to affect everyone on the entire planet. So again, we keep both of these in view as we read the text. That was kind of a bit of a tangent, but I wanted to just didn't want to leave that one open. So more to the point that Jesus makes, the reason that he has described everything in this chapter is this prophecy to give them and you a warning. And this warning is found in verse 34. But watch yourselves. But watch yourselves. Doesn't say watch the news. Doesn't say watch your neighbors. The New Testament injunction again and again is to be watchful over your own heart lest you veer off the path of God and are greatly troubled when Christ comes back. Now what does this mean to watch yourself? The Greek word is prosecho. It means to observe, to consider, to give heed to, or to mind something. King James Version says, take heed to yourselves. The New English Translation says, be on your guard. The New American Standard simply says, beware. John MacArthur describes this usage here as the vigilant anticipation of the Lord's return which produces the fear that leads to holiness and virtue. So it is a take heed to yourselves in the sense of being aware of His return which should put fear into our hearts in a reverent kind of fear that we need to be living and pursuing in holiness. And the, the warning is to not drift away. The warning that Jesus gives here and the warning that He gives elsewhere and the warning that the New Testament writers give when they give prophecy about the coming of Christ is that we are to be ready. I will give you a couple of examples to prove my point. Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a parable about a master leaving on a journey and He delegates responsibilities to His servants. And it concludes with this in Luke 12.37, Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake 
when He comes. Awake has the same idea as watch. Awake to the reality that they will give an account. Awake to the reality that God is coming back to judge the world. That's what the parable is about. Awake to the reality that their master will expect them to have served him in his absence. And then he concludes that parable saying, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5, which we looked at in our Bible study um, some time ago, 1 Thessalonians 5 describes how Jesus will return. It's with the trump of God and the voice of the archangel and there's the resurrection. And then he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, he's speaking spiritually, of course. He doesn't expect us to not sleep. He's talking about being aware of the spiritual battle that's going on and that you are in the battle and that you are fighting the battle and that you are serving Him and that you are overcoming trials and temptation, that you are persevering through the difficulties of this life. And the warning is that you could grow dull and you could drift away and you could be among those who Jesus is coming to judge. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, if you know this is coming, if you know this is the next event on God's timeline that Jesus is going to return and judge the world, then what kind of lives ought we to live if we know that's coming? This is what it is to be prepared. This is what he's talking about. If you read Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, so we have, we're in Luke 21, but Matthew chapter 24 is the same set of teaching. Jesus ends that with a similar warning, and then the entire next chapter 25, the whole chapter is parable after parable about being ready. So, the end of 24, you have the parable of the faithful and wise servants. This is a servant who, whose master has been gone a while and, he, and, and because his master has been gone so long, he starts to get lazy and he gets drunk and he beats his fellow servants and he says, my master is long in returning and Jesus shows up and 
The final warning at that at the end of that is stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then as it transitions into chapter 25, we have the parable of the ten virgins which Richard read. Five were ready for His coming. Five were not ready for His coming. And at the end of that parable, He says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And then after that, there's the parable of the talents. And some servants used what the Master gave them to serve Him, and others did not use what He gave them, and they were not ready And there's the parable of the sheep and the goats. The king separates those who served him and and those who did not serve him as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And do you see the pattern here? (laughs) They're all with the same application. We have to be ready. We have to be ready. We have to be serving him. We have to be walking in faith by him. We have to be in fellowship with him. Because the warning is that instead of living for the one who is returning, we become dull and we become swept away by the cares of this life and we get so wrapped up in this world that we do not do the will of God. And if Jesus gives this warning again and again and again, that means it's very possible that it could happen. In other words, he wouldn't spend all this time warning us if it wasn't something that could ever happen. So back to Luke 21.34. He describes some of these dangers. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So he gives a kind of threefold description here of what that might look like. We know what drunkenness is. Dissipation is not something that we talk about very often. Dissipation means behavior without moral restraint. So it's used to describe someone who's living apart from the boundaries that ought to be in place. So, this kind of person just does what he wants, eats what he wants, and drinks what he wants, and smokes what he wants, and says what he wants, and watches what he wants, and he does it apart from a standard of holiness that should be in place. And so this picture of dissipation and drunkenness kind of go hand in hand because it is a carelessness about the things of God. It's, it's drifting into a place where you just sort of become your own master and you just do what you want and you're not pursuing God in holiness and fear, but you are just sort of living like it's all about you. There's no sense of urgency. There's no concern about having to give an account. And the reason that there's the warning is because it's easy to drift in that direction. Now we live in an interesting day. We have this thing called social media. 
and I'm thinking particularly of Facebook. And Facebook is kind of peering into someone's life, sort of. I mean, people put things on Facebook that's not very reflective of how they really are. I understand that. But it also can kind of give you a gauge on where someone is at spiritually. I know a couple who moved away some years ago and they were pretty solid Christians. And yet, as I'm friends with them on Facebook, I just witnessed this drift over the last few years that particularly the wife tends to post inappropriate things, things that involve swearing and crude humor and crass joking. And when they post pictures of their life, it usually has to do with alcohol and parties. And I'm not going into this to be judgmental. I'm not like, all right, let me see what people on Facebook are doing. Like I'm the spiritual police or something, I promise you. But if that's all you're seeing out of someone on that social media outlet, you're seeing what's important to them. Right? I mean, social media doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us some things. And if you go from years ago posting Scripture and things about God to everything you post is either the forward of some inappropriate meme or pictures of you guys getting drunk, I mean, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but this is, just, this is your witness to the world, right? I mean, this is what you're showing the world. And as I'm studying this this week, I just kept thinking about them because I pray for them and I'm, I'm grieved about them and I'm afraid that as they drift further and further and just sort of adopt the thinking of this age, it's going to be an utter shock and terror when Jesus comes back. That's the picture that Jesus is describing for us. The terror is that we are going to find ourselves on the wrong side of this thing. If the picture is that Jesus returns and He separates the sheep from the goats and the sheep are those who have God's favor and the goats are those who are going to inherit God's wrath, the fear is, what if I'm on the wrong side of this thing? And so... God, who's a loving Savior, warns us this way. He warns us. It's very popular in American evangelicalism to say, I have Jesus as my Savior, and I prayed the prayer, and I walked the aisle, and I shook the pastor's hand, and they just sort of feel like, okay, we got that finished with. Now, what am I going to do with my life? It's like, you don't understand It's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to obedience. Now maybe you look at this verse and you think, well, dissipation and drunkenness, I mean, that, that's not that much of a stumbling block to you. You can't really see yourself returning to your former life, but I would venture to guess that maybe the third thing he mentions is more relevant to where you're at. Maybe you're more stumbled by the cares of this life. 
This can be just as much a deterrent from the path of righteousness as the others. You become consumed with the worries of this life. You become consumed with your day-to-day temporal cares and you lose an eternal perspective of things. The word cares here is translated in other places, anxieties. It doesn't only mean that, but it does mean that in some places. And we do have cares in this world, and we do have trials in this world, but there's a kind of focus and attention we might give to those things that are counter to the kingdom of God, and we can only see them and become consumed by them, and we miss the eternal perspective of it all and what God says about these things. And these cares weigh you down, and they weigh you down because they become your main concern and your main pursuit, and you are anchored to them, and they consume you, and your thoughts and your affections are all in those. And I think that is more of a temptation maybe for some of you than the other. Now I mentioned the word cares can mean anxieties, but it's also carries with it a worldly kind of care where you just care about just the things of life. It's not a worry thing necessarily. You can see this in the parable of the uh, sower. Remember the sower throws out the seed, it lands in different kinds of soil, And there's the thorny, and it says in Luke 8.14, As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, they hear the Word of God, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So it's not just worry about things in this life. It's, it's being consumed with things that aren't eternally important. There are people in this world who are just consumed with thoughts of romance and recreation and careers and hobbies and their family and... <clears throat> Many of those are good and wonderful things. But when they become the main thing, you fall prey to this drift of making this thing, even if it's a good thing, the main thing, and then this main thing eclipses the eternal thing. And Jesus says, beware. I would guess that most Christians are tempted here and seduced by the cares of this life and that robs them of their spiritual life because it's really easy to fall out of priority. It's really easy for your priorities to get mixed up. If you think that's true, say amen. There are many professing Christians who can't make it to church. 
They don't have time to pray. They think, oh, I can't go to church this Sunday. I'll, I'll go next Sunday. Oh, wait, next Sunday's the Super Bowl. Shoot. I'll go the Sunday after that. Oh, our friends are coming to town that weekend. And there's a lot of people in lots of churches out there who church is something they try to fit in, prayer is something they try to squeeze in, reading the Bible, really hard to do that, try to get it in there, but it usually doesn't happen. And I think there are lots of churches where that is common. There are a lot of people who name the name of Christ and they believe in the right doctrines. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the resurrection. Oh, if they would just give more thought to the second coming. Because they don't live as if this is the most important thing in their life. Now God knows that you need to work. He wants you to love your family. And in this life, you buy and you sell and you work and you rest and you plan and you do all the rest and that's part of life. But the point for the Christian is you do all of those things with God as you seek to do His will. And you're not just running off and doing your own will and occasionally asking God to bless you or occasionally finding time to come to church, or occasionally finding time to actually open your Bible. And the warning is, if you don't have a clear picture of the imminent return of Christ, you may drift off the path. And Jesus warns and says that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. Picture an animal caught in a trap. It's a picture of panic and terror. You know those traps they set out in the woods and maybe a bear or a fox or something gets his foot stuck in it and it is trapped and it is a frightful thing. And they're ensnared by it because they were totally unaware of the danger. It took them by surprise, and now they are doomed. And Jesus says that's how it's going to be when He returns to judge the ungodly, and heaven forbid that that be your fate as well. That's why he says, but watch yourselves. Watch your hearts. Watch your life. I mean, in Revelation chapter 6, there's a scene in which the ungodly cry out for the mountains to fall on them because Jesus is coming back to judge the world. And they would be rather be crushed by the mountains than have to face Him. And so the warning here is to people who may become half-hearted in their devotion or who want to be obedient and these kinds of things propel us to even greater levels of obedience. I mean, I read this and I'm like, I don't want that to be me. Help me, Lord. And I cling even tighter. 
he says, For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Do you not find in your heart such a strong pull to the things of this world? Do you not find in your heart such a strong pull to some of your former lusts or just the desire to do it your way? My will be done. Don't you feel that pull? I mean, I wrestle with that every day of my life. Jesus wants you to pray. Pray for your own fickle, deceitful, sometimes lukewarm heart. Pray that you not be swept away. That's what Jesus wants you to pray in regard to His return, that you have the strength to escape that, that you're walking with Him, that you're abiding in Him. The prayer you're to pray is that you may stand in that day and not be like the ungodly who will be ruined at His return. Makes me think of this verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37 to 39. The writer says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So I feel obligated to ask you, as we're wrapping up here, which best describes you? Are you one who is walking by faith and are confident on that day? Or are you one who will shrink back at His coming? What are you living for today? What are you pursuing? What do you wake up and think about? What do you give your strength to and your time to and your money to? A woman once asked John Wesley that suppose he were to know that he would die at midnight the next day, how would he spend his final day? And his reply was, Why, madam, just as I intend to spend it now, I would preach this evening at Gloucester and again at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. After that, I would ride to Tewkesbury, preach in the afternoon, and meet the societies in the evening. I would then go to Reverend Martin's house, who expects to entertain me, talk and pray with the family as usual, retire to my room at 10 o'clock, commend myself to my Heavenly Father, lie down to rest, and wake up in glory. 
Now, I've been thinking about this a lot this week. It would be really hard to say, if I knew I was going to die in 24 hours, I wouldn't do anything differently. (laughs) That seems like it would be hard to say. (laughs) But I think the point is clear. If you are living for God, if you are abiding in Him, then your life should not look much different than if you knew He was a hundred years off or if He was coming at midnight. It shouldn't look that much different. Jesus gave us a warning to self-examination. That means He wants us to be ready He wants us to be waiting. He wants us to be watchful over our own hearts so that we are not scrambling at the last moment to put our house in order. Heavenly Father, I know, Lord, that this week has been very convicting as I've studied this, Lord. You are so faithful and good to bring our sin to mind. You are so very faithful, Lord, to love us in this way that You would give us such firm warnings. You are so very faithful, Lord, to uh, have a personal relationship with us. That You care about the details of our lives. Oh Lord, more and more, may we care more about the things concerning eternity. Please bless your church. Please bless our group, Lord. Please help us to live for these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.